Philippians chapter 2. I'm preaching on losing your mind. Some of you say, I'm already there. I know what you're talking about. No, that's the title of my message. Losing your mind from Philippians chapter 2. Let me start with the story of Jimmy Moore. Jimmy Moore was a dying man, literally. He was a dying man. He literally had no future. His heart was giving out. Then he got a chance at life again when he received, he got notified, and then later received a heart transplant through Vanderbilt University. Less than two years later, he completed the grueling Music City Triathlon with a new heart. That is, in course, Nashville, Tennessee. And it, that triathlon consists of a 1K swim, a 40K bike ride, that's over 24 miles, and a 10K uh, run, which is about 6.2 miles. The man who had a heart transplant just 18 months earlier crossed the finish line with tears in his eyes and these words in bold print across his T-shirt. It said, I had a change of heart. Literally true. He had a change of heart. Wouldn't it be great if every person that needed a heart transplant could get it? And more importantly, wouldn't it be great if everyone who needed a change of heart would receive it? More people need a change of heart than a heart transplant. We understand that because the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We have a sinful heart that needs to be made over, transplanted, redeemed, converted, whatever words we want to choose from the Bible. But we need a new heart, the Bible tells us. Along those same lines, what most of us need, even as Christians, most of us need a mind transplant. Maybe not a heart transplant. We need a mind transplant or a change of mind. And that's exactly what our text is telling us today. That's why I've entitled my message, Losing Your Mind. Because Paul says, let this mind be in you. Lose your old mind. Get the mind of Christ. Losing your mind and replacing it with the mind of Christ. So Paul holds up here. This is really an illustration of Christ. He's teaching the church about humility and how necessary that is to have unity in the church. So Paul holds up to us this illustration of Christ's downward mobility. Now, we don't use those two words together. We talk about upward mobility. Well, they're moving up in the world, upward mobility, bigger house, better job, etc., nicer car. We often talk about upward mobility here in America, but But the passage of Scripture before us is talking about Christ's downward mobility as the ideal model for us to follow in our pursuit of humility, which is necessary for unity in the church. By the way, you can't have unity in any organization without a measure of humility, whether it be a church, whether it be a ball team, whether it be a nation, whether it be a family. If there isn't humility, there will be a lack of unity. So Paul is underscoring, highlighting this necessary trait of humility. 
So let's break down this very famous, it's one of the wonderful passages, not just in the book of Philippians, but throughout the entire New Testament. It's called the kenosis passage. Many of you have heard of that term because of the Greek word that's used here. Let's look at this wonderful, famous kenosis passage here. In verses 5 through 8, he talks about Christ's humiliation. And then in verses 9 through 11, Christ's exaltation. Those are the two main ideas we're looking at here this morning. Pastor Brad read to us verses 5 through 8. Let me just read those again. Let this mind in you, lose your mind, get the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery. Kind of awkward words for us today, but we'll break that down. Don't consider it, he didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God, uh, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, a doulos, a slave, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance or as fashion or in the form as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of of the cross. Now here we have a sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient God, all-powerful, all-knowing, in control of all things. That's what those terms mean, as you well know. Sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient God. So here we have a God that's in control of everything, knows everything, and is in 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 uh, is powerful over all things. God cannot be humbled. God cannot be humbled by anyone or any circumstances, anything. So what does he do? He humbles himself. Because he can't be humbled in this universe, in this world, he humbles himself. But for us, and that's the application, but for us, a humble Christ-like life begins with a submissive mind. If you're going to have a humble, Christ-like life, it starts right here in your head. It starts right here in your mind, the Bible tells us. And that is not something that, that God forces upon us. It isn't something that happens without our knowledge or our permission. We don't become humble. We don't become submissive by God just imposing it upon us. We're, we're a part of that process. We volunteer for that process. I read about when Muhammad Ali, the considered one of certainly one of the greatest heavyweight champions in the boxing world, when Muhammad Ali, his real name was Cassius Clay, as you probably know, when Muhammad Ali was riding first class, he got on an airplane, sat down, the plane was about to take off, and the announcement came on about put your seatbelt on, and he didn't put his on. And the stewardess reminded him, sir, please put your seatbelt on, and his reply was, Superman don't need no seatbelt. Well, the flight attendant was pretty sharp, and she snapped right back, Superman don't need no airplane. <laughs> In other words, you ain't Superman, and because you ain't Superman, you better put that seatbelt on or you're not flying with us. So 
finite man can get so proud of his meager accomplishments. Muhammad Ali was a great boxer, and he was considered himself a poet, as you well know. And he, he had a big ego. Finite man can be so proud of his meager accomplishment that we have a hard time doing the downward mobility thing and getting a humble mind and the kind of mind that Christ had, a submissive mind. There are a couple of words in verse 6 I mentioned that I want to clarify from our English translation. Who being in the form of God, notice that word form, Uh, that is the idea of essence, better put, because God doesn't have form. We know God is a spirit. He doesn't have a form. Spirits don't have form. So, It's really saying in the original language, being the very essence of God. Jesus Christ is the very essence of God, is what the Bible is telling us. We believe, and as all Christians historically have always believed, in the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ. He wasn't made son in time when he was born. He has been son from eternity past. The three persons of the Godhead. He's always been the Son. He's been equal with God. He is a co-equal person in the Godhead, just as the Spirit and the Father are. So, uh, this word form is really the idea, better translated, essence. God doesn't have form. He is a spirit. So our text is saying Jesus Christ has always been God from eternity past, and Jesus because he is God, has need of nothing. But we do have a need. And that's what motivated him to come to earth. Because we had such a great need. What does it say here? Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery. That's another awkward phrase. It's, it's the idea that Jesus was not so arrogant that he was going to cling to his position in the Godhead. And say, wait a minute, that's below me to become a man. Uh, we've had cats and dogs uh, all our life, I guess, in our house. Uh, after our kids grown up, got grown up and left the home, so did the dog. They didn't go with them, but uh, the dog was gone. But we still have a cat. And truthfully, uh, I love that cat, and that cat reciprocates that love back to me. Uh, this morning when I, I usually exercise for a little while before I come to church on Sunday morning and I was doing, I have a, a total gym and I was doing that and then I lay down and I do some stretches whenever, and that cat comes down and when I'm doing my stretches, moving my feet around, pulling my knees up and doing the various things, that cat always comes down and she flops around beside me. She's doing her cat poses. And I, I, I often lay my hand out like this because I throw my leg over and she always comes over and lays her hand or her head in my hand and uses it like a pillow. I mean, it's a tender picture. And she's a, it's a wonderful cat, I tell you. So I love that cat. Someday that cat's going to die. She's already, I don't know, 10 years old or 12 years old, whatever. Someday that cat's going to die. It's going to be a sad day in our household. But if God said, hey, if you want to rescue your cat, you're going to have to become a cat and die for that cat. I'd say, forget it. I'm not dying for that cat. I love the cat. She loves me. But I'm not dying for my cat. 
when Jesus Christ came and di- became a man and died for you and me, that was a greater transition from being the God, the creator, the sovereign to become a man than it would be for me or you to become a, an animal. We're much closer to that life form as a cat or a dog than God is to us. He really did condescend. He really, he really lowered himself. He emptied himself is what the Bible is saying. And he was not so arrogant. He was not so uh, desirous of hanging on to his position that he says, I can't do that. He says, I will do that. I'll become a man and I'll eventually die for mankind. So he had a need of nothing, but we had a need, and Jesus Christ did not consider it his equality with the Father. I'm translating literally from the from the, the Greek. He did not consider his equality with the Father something selfishly to hang on to. What a statement. He did not consider his equality with the Father something that he was going to grasp and hang on to. He relinquished it. He opened his hand and says, I volunteer. You've heard me say uh, that, that volunteering is putting one hand in the air. You've been in the army. You've learned not to do that. You don't volunteer, Okay. Volunteering is one hand in the army. That's not what God asks of us, at least most of the time. He asks us to put two hands in the air. He asks us two hands in the air is surrender. There's a difference between volunteering and surrendering. And God is asking us to surrender. Put both hands in the air and submit to him. Essentially, Jesus says, I cannot keep my privileges for myself. I must use them for others is what one commentator says about this phrase i must not keep my privileges for myself i must use them for others what a contrast that is with lucifer you know there's two main passages in scripture that describe lucifer before the creation of mankind and they're found in isaiah chapter 14 and ezekiel chapter 28 Many of you are familiar with them. In Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28, Lucifer says, I will. He says it multiple times. I will ascend to the throne. I will be like the Most High. I will, I will, I will. What does Jesus say? Thy will. Not my will, like Lucifer. Thy will be done. Lucifer was not satisfied with being the highest created being in the world, in the universe. He wanted to ascend to the throne. Jesus was the creator, and yet he willingly became a man. He descended. Lucifer wanted to ascend to even a higher place. He wanted to be a part of the Godhead. And as a result of that, because of his pride, he was cast out of heaven. Jesus was in heaven. He was God. He is God. And he descended to the lowest parts of the earth and became a man. He willingly became a man. Christ's humility is a rebuke to Satan's pride and to ours. What a rebuke. This passage, as I mentioned earlier, is called the kenosis passage. Because that's the Greek word, canoe. 
is the Greek word kenosis passage, which means uh, to empty. In verse 7, it's used here. Uh, it, it's, it's that very Greek word. But made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, and came in the likeness of man. So he made the phrase, no reputation. He emptied himself of not just his reputation, but of his Godhead. Well, let me rephrase that. Not his Godhead, but he emptied himself of his prerogatives as the Godhead. So, what did you, the natural question then, if, if the word here is to be emptied, what did he empty himself of? Well, we know he didn't empty himself of his deity because he can't quit being God. Deity refers to his Godhead. He didn't didn't quit being God to become a man. We call it the hypostatic union in theology. He was 100% man, 100% God. He didn't empty himself of his deity or his Godhead. So what did he empty himself of? He emptied himself of his glory, which is different. If we were to see God today, we'd be blinded just as Moses was uh, seeing the hinder parts of, of the Spirit of God pass before Mount Sinai. And he absorbed some of that glory in those few moments. And then he had to wear a veil because he absorbed some of the glory of God. That uh, brightness, that firmament that surrounds God. So he hid, we could say, Jesus hid or he mathed or he covered up his glory so he could be inter- interacting with mankind. He took upon himself the form, the morphe, you recognize that word, morphosis, mor- metamorphosis to be changed. He took upon himself the form of a man. And he tucked his glory inside his human body. Now, there was a couple of times they saw, every time he did a miracle, the disciples and those around him said, he's not a man, because only God could do this. When they went up on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John, they saw Christ transcended and his glory shone forth, and they fell on their knees. And they saw his glory momentarily, or at least part of his glory. So, Jesus hides his glory. He emptied himself, or he hid is probably a better way of saying it. He hid his glory from mankind so he could have a ministry to the people of his day and ultimately to us. So what is it saying here? He voluntarily relinquished the exercise of some of his divine attributes. That's what this passage is saying. He voluntarily relinquished the exercise of of many of his divine attributes. Not all of them, because he did miracles, as we well know. He then willingly took upon himself the form, and there's that word morphe in the Greek language. He took upon himself the morphe, the essence and nature of a doulos, of a bond slave, of a servant, is what it's saying. So he took upon himself this body, and he served mankind. Ultimately, serving mankind in the greatest way by dying on the cross. 
He became a slave. A doulos means a burden bearer, someone that carries the water, carries the food, does the burden bearing. Jesus literally became a burden bearer. Why? Because he bore the sins of mankind. So it's very appropriate word to you. He became the burden bearer of all of the sin of mankind who will trust in him. Amazing what this text tells us. You know, Jesus was so poor. I mean, when he emptied himself, he emptied himself of everything. Jesus had nothing. Jesus was so poor, he was constantly borrowing. He borrowed a manger to be born in. He borrowed a house to live in and to sleep in. He borrowed a boat to preach from. He borrowed an animal to ride on into Jerusalem. Or he borrowed a room where he could privately meet with his disciples for his final meal. And then he finally borrowed a tomb to be buried in because he was only going to use it temporarily. Everything in Jesus' life, it appears, almost was borrowed. He owned nothing. So when he emptied himself, that's an understatement of Scripture. He had nothing. He really did become a servant, a slave. What grace. I hope that is your response. That's your thinking right now. What grace God has manifest and bestowed upon mankind and me personally. What grace from heaven to earth, from glory to shame, from Lord to servant, from life to death, even as it says here, even the death of the cross, that's underscoring the type of death. It's saying not only did he die, he died the most ignominious, shameful kind of death known to mankind. Not just any death, the death of the cross is what it's underscoring. He was not a martyr, he was a savior. He wasn't captured and couldn't get away. He volunteered and he relinquished himself to the Jews and to the Romans. Not just any death, the death of the cross. He willingly laid down his life for the sins of the world. As Dr. J.H. Jowett said, ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. And before there will be some blessing, there's probably going to be some bleeding. And Jesus typifies and epitomizes that very idea. There was some bleeding going on. He shed his blood for us. So we see Christ's humiliation. This passage is often referred to as the humiliation passage, the humiliation of Christ. Second, what does the Bible say? God teaches that when we humble ourselves, there's going to be an exalting someday. Just as it was for Jesus Christ, so will it be for us. Hang on to that. Hey, if you're suffering now in the name of Christ and for the cause of Christ, if you're making sacrifices for the cause of Christ, someday God is going to reward you. Because whatever humiliation that's done for the cause of Christ, there will someday be an exaltation. 
verses 9 11, 9 through 11 talk about Christ's exaltation. And there are really four steps in Christ's exaltation. I want you to kind of be mindful of them here. I'll simply mention them and then move on. First of all, it was his resurrection. When we talk about the exaltation, it starts with his resurrection. When men buried Jesus, that was the last time hands, human hands, ever dealt with Jesus. In his resurrection, he comes out of the grave. And then after that, what happens? His ascension. Remember in Acts chapter 1, the angels appear as Jesus rises up out of uh, off the earth, the angels appear to the disciples and say, why stand ye gazing into, into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up from you will someday come again in like form. That was his ascension. Of course, he, he came from heaven to earth a number of times, but one day he finally ascended for the last time. Jesus is not on earth. Jesus is not walking with us as he did with the disciples and even after his resurrection. So the second step in his exaltation after the resurrection was his ascension. Jesus was visibly taken up into glory, Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. The third step is his coronation. Because of what he accomplished, because of what he achieved, there was a coronation in heaven. And when, given, when Jesus gave the great commission to the disciples, to the church, to us, what does he say there in Matthew 28? He says, all authority has been given unto me, and I delegate some of that authority to you as my disciples, as, as my followers, as the church. All authority, in other words, God handed to him, that's exactly what the Bible teaches in many places, all authority to judge and to reward has been given unto Jesus. So he was crowned with this authority over heaven and earth, over everything that's created, his coronation. Last step in his exaltation is his intercession. Jesus didn't get to heaven and just sit down beside the Father and cross his legs and say, my work is done. He's interceding for us right now. Hebrews tells us more than any other New Testament book about that. He's in heaven saying, oh God, you see what they're going through. You see the trial. You see their heartache. Oh God, be merciful. God, meet this need with your grace. He's interceding for us. He is the intercessor. He's the great high priest at the right hand of God continually asking in our behalf. The four steps of his exaltation. Men had done their worst to the Savior, but God exalted him and God honored him. Men gave him names of ridicule and slander, but the Father gave him a glorious and exalted name. Notice what it says here, uh, verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. There are a lot of unbowed knees today. There's a lot of stiff-necked people today that stiff-arm Jesus, that disregard God, that have no value for anything spiritual of the church. But someday, every knee shall bow, and every tongue, what does he say? Every tongue shall confess. That means the white knee, that means the black knee, that means the brown knee, that means the yellow knee, that means every tongue, that means Chinese, that means English, that means Spanish. Every tongue shall confess. Every knee shall bow. 
That hasn't happened yet, but it's coming. It's coming. That's a part of his exaltation. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. We will recognize his ultimate plan. They will confess him as Lord. It is important for people to bow and confess now, today. Confess that Jesus is Lord now and today and to take him as their Savior. That's what Romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 10 is saying. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, thou shalt be saved. Listen, you either bow now, you either confess now and experience salvation, because if you don't bow and confess now and experience salvation, you will do it in the future and you will experience condemnation. Condemnation. Would you rather have salvation or condemnation? Well, nobody in their right mind, nobody with the mind of Christ would ever say, well, I just want condemnation. So if you're here today, listen to me. If you're here today, hear what I'm saying. If you're not saved, and if you don't get saved, you'll be condemned to a devil's hell forever. Take him as your savior. Bow the knee. Confess with the tongue that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. The person with the submissive mind, and that's really what this passage is talking about. Jesus is a wonderful illustration. I'm so glad he used Jesus as an illustration here. As he, the person with the submissive mind will live for others. They can expect sacrifice and service. That's what servants do. That's what characterizes their life, sacrifice and service. But in the end, it is going to lead to glory. The Bible assures us of that. The Bible promises of that. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. First Peter chapter 5, verse 6. So Peter is exhorting us to do something that doesn't come naturally to us. He's saying, be submissive. Become a servant. Be like Jesus. Because someday it's going to pay off. Someday you'll be rewarded and you'll be exalted. So in seven short verses, the Holy Spirit has traced for us Jesus' journey from the cradle to the cross to the crown in seven short verses. What a text! What a passage. S.M. Lockridge, I used to listen to his preaching when I was a young preacher boy, when I was in college, and I thought he was a great, great preacher. He's a black preacher that's gone on to be with the Lord, and black preachers have a way of, of describing and getting into a, almost a sing-song and almost a almost prosaic way of saying things. And S.M. Lockridge preached a, a message called The Indescribable Christ. I'll read to you from it. He says, speaking of Christ, he says, He's enduringly strong. He's eternally steadfast. 
He's impurely powerful. He's impartially merciful. He's God's son. He's the sinner's savior. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's preeminent. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He is the highest idea in philosophy. He's the fundamental truth in theology. He sympathizes and he saves. He guards and he guides. Do you know him? He is the king of knowledge. He is the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. He's the master of the mighty. He's the captain of the conquerors. He's the head of the heroes. He's the leader of the legislators. He's the overseer of the overcomers. He's the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. He says, I wish I could describe him to you, but he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. I'm trying to tell you, the heavens cannot contain him, let alone a man explain him. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him, and Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. That is my king. Is he yours? Thanks for listening to sermons from the pulpit at Red Rocks Baptist Church. For more information about our church, visit our website at www.redrocksbaptistchurch.org or follow us on Instagram at Red Rocks Baptist.